Welcome back to The Deeper Cut, a podcast ministry of Mercy Hill Presbyterian Church. I am delighted to be with you again this week um, on this beautiful summer morning, and uh, I am joined, as always, by my co-hosts and our pastor, Phil Henry. Phil, good morning to you, sir. Good morning, Tim. How are you doing today? Doing well. The... um... Big transition in the Henry home is mm. is underway as my last two children are embarking to university studies. So I'm super proud of my daughters and uh, excited to see them settled in in their in their various places. So it's been a busy busy week for us here. Mm. It's exciting. Um, probably a little difficult, I would imagine, too, for you as a as a dad. It is. Um, my pastor and mentor, Tim Bailey, was, was with us this last Sunday, and one of his prayers for Polly and me was that as we grieve the loss of our children, and we will, that God would fill that loss with A, a knowledge of his love for us, but mm. then B, with uh, new children, uh, spiritual children and, and otherwise, mm-hmm. and grandchildren, mm-hmm. and that's that's the way of the covenant. So uh, we we recognize the there's a it's it's kind of like with with the rebuilding of the temple. There were shouts of joy and tears of sadness at yep. the same time. Yeah, that's good. Well, if you're ever feeling particularly lonely and missing kids in the house, just let me know. I'm happy to drop my, my, my crew off with you for a little while. <laughs> you, know, you know, Polly and I are more than willing to do I know, that. I know, I know. Uh, so lots lots of stuff going on uh, in your life and the life of, of our church. We're just still getting back into the swing of things, I think, from, from the summer kind of break period. Um, and we are back for... Uh, I, th- I don't know how many weeks we have left, Phil, in First Peter. It can't be many at this point. Um, but kind of picking up in First Peter chapter 5, uh, we had the first five verses last week, and if you haven't yet had a chance um, to listen to that sermon or the podcast from last week, I would recommend that you do that. I, I, they're not so connected in, in that you would be lost continuing here today, but... Um, I really enjoyed our conversation with Josh last week, and um, and I thought this this week's sermon, Phil, particularly hit home for me. I think a lot of people in the church probably f- felt it. It landed hard in their hearts, um, just in terms of the call to to humble ourselves, um, and we'll get into the details about that um, momentarily. But one of the things that we've enjoyed doing, or I've enjoyed doing, and I think you would agree, Phil, we spend a couple of minutes at the, at the onset here and talk about, um, the preaching in and of itself, even before we jump into the sermon. So, uh, well, I'll confess to our listeners, and we've often alluded to this as kind of a running joke now, I guess, in our show, is that we have a podcast before, before the podcast, and we spent no... Um, small amount of time already this morning talking about, you know, this week's sermon and kind of the prep and kind of what's going on in your life. And you you just mentioned that 
you know, the girls are, are heading off this week. So I'm just curious, um, you know, you, you had five weeks away from Mercy Hill's pulpit. And then these past two weeks, you know, I think you've, you've come back. Um, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but you, you seem to be re-energized and, and um, just really, really rich sermons that you've preached. Not that the ones prior to that weren't, but I just feel like they're kind of dripping mm-hmm. with honey, um, to use an image. And is it, I don't know, is, are these are these sermons have been difficult for you in terms of prep, or have you found them, I mean, you've been thinking about these for months and months and months at this point. Right. So um, any particular insight you could share with us on... Yeah, it's these it's, texts. It's a great question, and as you mentioned, we've already had some good dialogue about this. Um, you know, I think as we come to the end of First Peter, one of the things that is bringing additional urgency to my heart is the fact that First Peter is almost over, hmm. and you might be getting. Um, if, 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 if you come from a big family and soup's on for dinner, if you're the last one in line, you might not get a lot of meat in the bowl. Right. But in this case, the bowl is quite large, and there's more than enough for all the children. So maybe the last one in line is getting extra hmm. spoonfuls of uh, meat and vegetables in, in the soup, um, knowing that the bowl's going in a sense the bowl's being taken away in, in just a few weeks and so i'm cramming everything that i haven't set up <laughs> until now or maybe passion that i'd been kind of dosing out week by week so i'm not sure if that's the case mm. but it could be the case mm. i mentioned my daughters also in terms of something's going on in my family and this was both of their last Sunday in church, and my youngest daughter came up to me and she said, Papa, were you saying goodbye to us in that sermon? <laughs> it's not exactly how it went, but she knew something was going on, and without meaning to, I think, and, and explicitly intending to, I, th- I think that was part of hmm. what was driving, or I felt compelled maybe more than usual, and then to have... Uh, Pastor Bailey, a, a, a mentor and a spiritual father in our congregation that Sunday was, um, um, I mean, I wasn't preaching to him in any way, but certainly um, wanting to honor him. Mm. There wasn't really the time or the opportunity to to do so explicitly, so I wanted to make yeah. sure. I mean, it was a VBS Sunday, so... Yeah. Anything else would have would have rung a little hollow, I think. But um, I wanted by my by my work, I, I wanted to uh, make sure he knew that I've been listening and hmm. trying to to follow his godly instruction over the years. So hmm. I'm also compelled, Tim, with the subject matter because I feel that it's of the utmost urgency for our church. And because I 
um, I have this lever called the ministry of the word. I want to make sure that I use it to its full effect. Right. I think you have been. I mean, I, I feel uh, like I've had a lot of good conversations in the past week and a half about the past two sermons that you've preached both in my house and with other people in the church. Um, we've talked, I, I specifically have been struck over the course of the sermon series in first Peter about the urgency to which Peter writes and that you have helped kind mm -hmm. of bring out, bring to the forefront and I've very, very much appreciated that because I think oftentimes, particularly in the epistles, when I'm reading them on my own, I'm like, oh, that makes sense. Okay. <laughs> you know, and it's kind of like, it's not, it's certainly not in one ear and out the other, but I, I don't, the call to action is not so strong in, in my own head. And so, um, you know, even this past Sunday, you brought up, again, and you've brought this up on, on a number of occasions, you know, we're in the last days. There is urgency here for your own life, for our church. And I don't know if that's exactly what you were meaning when you just said the urgency that you feel for the church, our church in particular, but, you know, I'm sitting there on the edge of my seat kind of, you know, listening to you because it's like, okay, like, I get it. I want to, I want to hear, mm -hmm. I want to, understand i want to apply i want to do something not just be hearers of the word but be doers mm -hmm. of the word um hearkening back to james and so the past two weeks in particular and you've said i'm going to bring this up because you said it in both your sermons you used the same at, uh, image um and used a little more last week than this week but you know basically has is God putting friction in your engine, mm -hmm. right? And uh, I'll have to say, like that—that's been, um, not convicting, but certainly like created a ton of self introspection mm -hmm. for, for me. You mm -hmm. know, and like, hmm, that's yeah. a great question. Where, where is my life hard, and what is the source of that difficulty? Right. If it's somehow anxiety or resistance to God and a hesitation or a slowness or even just a partial placing myself under his mighty hand, then that resistance has a solution. Hmm. If it's coming from the fallen world, which we have no control over, you know, our, our, our income tax return is delayed or, you know, I don't know, neighbors are playing loud music or, or your children are are struggling but even even in those three cases there's a personal component that really warrants some introspection hmm. and some uh, I guess some evaluation am I am I living in society as an elect exile and doing good is my conduct among the Gentiles what it should be hmm. are my priorities in, in order here Yeah, I, I th you know, the, the passage, so we're in 1 Peter 5, verses 6 and 7, mm -hmm. and the, the text is, humble yourself, right? Um, 
and and I don't know the original Greek, but it stood out to me, Phil, that humble yourselves in verse 6. When I think of humility or being humbled, I think of it exactly in that way. Being humbled, right? As a something that is humbling me or someone who is humbling me or a state of humility, not so much as an action that I'm taking upon myself. Um, and I was very convicted by that. You uh-huh. didn't call that out specifically in your sermon, but I, like I kind of s- sat there and I went, hmm. Yeah, Peter's I, telling me to humble myself. And right. normally I'm thinking, I'm praying, God, would you humble me? Or I need to be more humble. Interesting, and I'm not yeah. thinking about it as I need to do this myself for myself to myself. Right. right. Um, and that's a strong. The more I thought about it, the more I'm like, man, that's a strong. <laughs> that's a strong statement that Peter's making here. Um, humble yourselves. I like so, this uh, this short explanation from Karen Jobes. She says to be humbled implies a decision to remain faithful to Christ even knowing that humiliation will result. Hmm. The, the, the key word in my mind there is the decision. Correct. Right? So you, it's not like you're accepting something, right? It, it's not like right. this is... It's, a, it's an embrace. It's a, it's a conscious choice. Right, right. right. Which is... Um, it, it makes it an active thing, right? Not a passive thing in my mind. And that's that's a challenge for me, you know, and a challenge to me to not just um, hope that humility comes about in my life, but that I would actively be making decisions to humble myself um, and rely on the Lord and stop trying to take more ownership and more right. glory and more power and all these things that, that I, I don't deserve and nor should I have in my own life. Don't forget the gospel, though, Tim, <laughs> um, which we often talk about. So the second half of verse 5 says, explains why it's so, I guess, appealing to make this decision. Right, so that at the proper time he may exalt you? No, verse 5. Oh, I'm sorry, I'm at 6. Yeah, close yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. So the decision to embrace social ostracism or um, the decision to be disagreeable towards your wife or to the decision to be agreeable towards your wife because Mm -hmm. both can involve humility Mm -hmm. Um, just as an aside the idea of humbling myself does not necessarily imply that I am becoming less obvious to people around me sometimes it implies I'm more obvious it doesn't mean I'm necessarily being less awkward at a restaurant or in the car or in the lobby at church sometimes it means I'm being more awkward in those situations so that involves a significant degree of spiritual maturity to be able to determine those things. And sometimes you never really know. You just trust your instinct Mm -hmm. and and have to learn the hard way. 
-hmm. having said that, moving into that place of humiliation, whatever it may be, is a place of abundant provision. So you're actually drawn to this because it's, as I said in the message, it's terrifying alternative is that you find yourself outside of the will of God and being opposed by God. I didn't quote in the message, but Gamaliel in the book of Acts cautions his fellow Jews. He says, if this thing is of men, it's going to die out. Yeah. What are you guys worried about? But if it's of God, right. you should be very concerned. Yep. So just leave it alone, guys. I mean, come on. Back away from the car. You know, Put it down slowly. <laughs> this bomb could go off. And if it isn't a bomb, you have nothing to worry about. Right. So I think um, these opportunities for obedient humili humiliation or obedient humbling or mm. the obedient decision to determine to humble yourself, which is kind of what you're saying, mm -hmm. conceal tremendous, tremendous pockets of grace mm. and enthusiasm, I think emotionally, intellectually, I think a, just a cognitive rest, which psychologists talk about, um, you know, the pop psychologist and motivational speakers talk about the flow state. You know, just going through your, your Christian life almost not habitually and unthinkingly, but almost riding a, a kind of an adrenaline push hmm. where you know you're in the will of God. That's, that's the grace. No matter what people are saying about you, uh, that's where I think the urgency is, as much as it's about the end times, and it is. But it, regardless of Jesus is returning tomorrow or not, the church is too often, our church and the church is limping along with like half a tank. And I think this is partly why. Hmm. Yeah, you, you made me think of um, the end of John, the Gospel of John. When Pete, uh, Jesus is on the beach, and he asks Peter three times, and and thinking because Peter is the author here, and yeah, there's like what an, a almost like a humiliating experience that would be if you were Peter, you know, it because is. he's hearkening back to it Peter's is. denial, and but but at the same time, and Peter's humbling himself there, or being humbled at least by by Christ, and and he's being embraced by Jesus, and um. I mean, just put yourself in that situation. If I asked you a question for which we both know the answer is yes, yeah. twice, the third time you would roll your eyes and you might even rebuke me. And I'm, I'm, your, just, I'm your pastor, right? Yeah. I know if my pastor asked me a question like that the second time because of my personality, I would not tolerate <laughs> i meant what i said the first time no need to ask it a second time yeah the third time would be like i'd i'd just be i'd, I'd walk away so yes when peter the peter's um constitutionally endowed with the grace of god mm -hmm. in that moment too mm -hmm. but still you can hear the exasperation coming oh yeah through Lord, you know exactly. That, that I love you. You can hear it coming through. Like he's doing everything he can to keep keep his head in the game here. Yeah. I I love. I've been doing that a lot um, as we've been going through the sermon series. Is 
thinking back to Peter's life that, you know, what we know of it from the Gospels in particular, and associating that with what he's writing, because there's so many tie-ins, so many that you can't possibly talk about them all the time, but, yeah, you know. I guess one regret for the series, Tim, if I could interrupt really quick, is that the Reverend Dr. Jim Leary is has only preached four. He will only have done a four. Yeah. Maybe it was five, but we could have easily done a, a dozen <laughs> yeah. alongside. Almost like every other week, we could have intercalated these, you know, Peter's life and then Peter's epistle. Yeah. So, but I did have a great conversation with uh, Jim last week because we, we tend to meet, you know, weeks before he preaches just to pray together and you know, I can't keep my hands off of it. I just love preaching and Bible study. And so we, we kind of swapped, you know, kind of some nuggets about his upcoming text in September, mm. which will be the last, officially the last sermon in the series. We'll, we'll go to uh, Jim Leary. Mm. But yeah, so you've, you've heard the biography of Peter as we've been going through, and that's, that's wonderful. I just think it's, um, uh, for me, I've, found it really helpful, and we talk a lot about it on, on these these conversations with the mics in front of our mouth of, you know, the context of, of who Peter's writing to and, and the message he's trying to give to that early church, but then also from his own experience, you know, so I think of, um, you know, humble yourselves, and I don't know if this is true, but there's a part of me that wants to believe that Peter, when he's writing that, is thinking of um, when when Jesus rebukes him, when he says, uh, get behind me, Satan. You know, you're not thinking the right way here, Peter. Again, like, what a humiliating and humbling experience. And I wonder if Peter has these things in his mind when he's, when he's writing to the church. Um, Maybe not that specifically, but, you know, this is a guy who certainly, I think, has walked the walk in a way, right? And we talked about that a little bit last week, you know, I'm your fellow elder, and then he writes to the elders. Um, and that, that, to me, carries so much weight and makes, makes it easier in a way to not only relate and listen to what Peter has to say, but to be encouraged mm -hmm. by what Peter's saying here, because it's not like he's a philosopher who's just expounding these things that, you know, I sat here and I thought about this for a long time, and this is what I came up with. Good point. Know? And um, thanks for that reference, because remember in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 1, Peter describes himself in three ways, as a fellow elder and as a witness of the sufferings of Christ. So he, he, he's had to humble himself under the mighty hand of God. My, my claim was that wasn't him staking an, apost an, an apostolicity moment. You know, this is not him saying, I'm one of the 12, I was with, with the That's man right. himself. Yep. I was claiming this is post-resurrection Peter, learning to preach the gospel Peter, suffering and being imprisoned Peter, martyr Peter, because martyreo is the word for witness. So he's, he's martyring, witnessing to the sufferings of Christ in his pastoral ministry, mm -hmm. just like he's asking us to do. 
in First Peter 5, 5b on down to verse 7, which was Sunday's text. Hmm. So by placing myself under the mighty hand of God, that's the only place of safety when I'm witnessing to the sufferings of Christ. So there's a nice connection there. Yeah. But then third, he says, and a partaker of the grace which is soon to be revealed. Right. Well, how do we partake of this grace? Not by stepping outside of God's will and by blazing our own trail, slapping, you know, the, the kids these days put put stickers on everything, laptops and water bottles especially. So you slap a Christian sticker on it and say, this is what Christian looks like because it, passes, it flies under the radar of the compromised Christianity in my church or in my parents. Um, it's attracting no attention, and therefore it's just Christian enough. Hmm. That is a, that's a zero grace moment for some college student. No, the, the rich, succulent dripping you used earlier, the, the, the moisture-laden grace po- pocket of gold, is to partake of the glory which is to be revealed as I make a conscious decision to en- endure humiliation from my social circumstances or my marriage, but I'm under the mighty hand of God. It's literally a Passover moment, Tim. Mm. And the destroying angel will crush me otherwise. So that's, that's a great tie. Because just in hearing you talk, First Peter five one absolutely models what he's commanding in First Peter five six. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, you said it's a Passover moment. It's a gospel moment, right? It's it's um. And for those who've experienced that, even in a in a earthly way with someone else, you know, like you being humbled or humiliated and receiving grace, it, like, you almost, I don't know, brought to tears of joy afterward, you know? It's not, it, your humiliation dissipates very, very quickly, I found. In, in it, those, does. it does, it does, that, and that's, that's the myth, is that the, um, what they say, um, when somebody attracts media attention, the news cycle, there, there's some oh, phrase. It's like a 24-hour news cycle right. kind of thing. It's like, you know, if you're my press agent or if you're my media relations specialist and I've got to, you know, come out with some thing, yeah. you know, raising interest rates or... Yeah, you know, don't like, worry. Tomorrow they'll forget about it. It's going to be a terrible week for you, Yeah. but next week we're going to be fine. Yep. You know, and you're going to be like, just, you know... Yeah, it gets replaced with something take, else. Take a trip to Baja and turn off your phone, and when you come back, it will, will be done in, in a week. Yeah. But, that, I mean, that, that is grace in the, in the Christian life. When forgiveness, when true forgiveness is there, gospel forgiveness. It's, it's not just grace, it's power. And hmm. I guess I want to take a shot at... Um, um, there's, there's a movement in the PCA and just in Christendom generally kind of a hyper-grace thing. And ca- count me in, in like 40 to 60%, depending on what I had for dinner last night. But 
you know, the so-called grace movement or grace junkies sometimes is, is what people in, in this tribe refer to themselves. And, and I've used that for myself because, man, I need it. Mm. I need it. I fall woefully short. And this incessant, I, I'm, I'm building it up and I'm going to break it down in a second, but this incessant kind of, you mentioned introspection, you know, this incessant kind of anti-Lutheran introspection is exhausting, Tim. Hmm. The gospel is not inside of you. It is on, on a hill, far away, between two thieves. Look to him. And every, I say this every Sunday when we come to the Lord's table. I say, hmm. take a glance at your, at your disordered heart, but gaze longingly at the cross, because that's what this meal is about, is about his sustaining grace. So, you know, count, count me in. But um, grace is just as much power to be obnoxious when everyone else around you is saying, all is well, all mm. is fine. It's, and obnoxious is the wrong word, but it is how you're perceived, and it's what we're afraid of. I used the word awkward before because it's the greatest transgression for someone between the ages of 12 and 25, you know, God help me from being or feeling awkward today. Yeah. Like I wake, my entire waking day is designed around avoiding feeling awkward. And when you put yourself under the mighty hand of God, it does not matter whether you feel awkward or not, or whether people think that you should feel awkward. What matters is, is that you're drinking from the rich streams of grace. So I want to rehabilitate grace in some ways just from being something that alleviates me from uh, an endless barrage or a dowsing waterfall of, of self-condemnation, which is how it's usually used and appropriately used in some cases. Hmm. Yes, but we need just as much grace to stick our neck out and to, to introduce an awkward moment in an otherwise peaceful context when every fiber of my body wants to turtle you know, and pull in my head and close the shell and yep. keep my mouth shut and not ruin this special magical moment for, for whoever I'm with. And that, that too is grace. And uh, it might be a grace, an awkward grace-grabbing moment for me to shut down the mouths of legalists, which puts me firmly in the camp of the grace junkies. But it also might be a grace where someone who is abusing God's grace or indifferent to the preciousness of God's grace needs to be held accountable. And uh, honestly, uh, I, think, I think Jack Miller's right there with me, you know, on both sides of it, just having read his stuff. So, hmm. <laughs> I'm shrugging my shoulders, Tim. I don't, I, I don't know how much you connect to any of that, but... Uh, maybe I could pivot just reading your facial expressions. <laughs> what do you think about preaching both the positive and the negative? Because this is related. Yeah, I, well, I, I think <clears throat> I think we have to. I think, I mean, if not, we're not really preaching um, the whole gospel in that regard, right? Like if you only take half of half of what the Bible is telling us, whether that's the gospel in and of itself, if you preach only law and no grace, or only grace and no law, for instance, to use those two, they're not necessarily 
diametrically opposed, but you know what I mean, opposite ends of the coin, um, you're, you're missing out and you're not getting the, the true, the, you're not getting the whole truth, right? You're not getting everything that God is, is giving to us. So I would also say that kind of by definition, there, if you have a positive, then there is a negative. So now you're just burying your head in the sand if you're ignoring mm-hmm. the other end. Right. So I think of, um, this is off topic, so I don't want to go down the rabbit hole, but it popped into my head and I have a microphone, so I'm going to say it. Um, I think of, uh, the catechisms and going through the, the moral law, the 10 commandments, and there's a positive and a negative Good to point. both. And most of us and or I shouldn't say most of us, at least most people that I know and, and growing up in South Jersey, there was, oh yeah, the Ten Commandments. You know, you learn the Ten Commandments kind of no matter what church you... If you go to church of any kind that's Christian, you're going to hear about the Ten Commandments. Never in my life until I encountered the Catechism did I realize that there was a positive and a negative aspect yeah. to the Ten Commandments. So but Just to be clear for our listeners, if you don't know, <laughs> thou shalt not murder is a negative. Correct. So yeah. that forbids... The taking unjust taking of life of another human being. We might be familiar with the added nuance that Jesus gives to it. Even if you don't take someone's life in bloodshed, uh, anger, rage, plotting, revenge are all expressions of the murder impulse, even if you don't carry out the dirty deed. So Jesus says, even if you're angry with your brother in your heart, you've already committed murder. A lot of people are familiar with kind of the negative and the nuanced negative, if I can put it that way. Right. Or the yep. physical prohibition and then its spiritual cousin, mm-hmm. right? Because anger is a spiritual cousin to the physical prohibition of manslaughter. But you're saying there's a positive side to right. thou shalt not murder? Right. Which would be to thou shalt protect life to build up... Um, both physically, to bring life. like literally to physically protect someone's life. Right. So you see someone about to get murdered and you have the capacity to stop that. You know, uh, Todd Beamer, let's roll. You know, he was obeying the sixth commandment when he said that. Hmm. Um, because he sought to stop murder. But then there's also a positive spiritual cousin, which is to say, to behave in a way that's charitable towards your neighbor, even when you're angry with him or her. So yeah, that all, all of a sudden, we, we go from a pinpoint to an ocean, right? right. Yeah. This is your point. Exactly, exactly. And if, you, and if you miss the other half, right? If you miss the positive and only look at the negative, and you could even, in this case, make the, the case, if you miss the spiritual cousin and only look at the, the literal. physical, the literal, then you've caught a pinpoint when really the Bible's talking about an ocean. Right. Right. So that's kind of what I was what I was getting at when you asked the question, do we need to preach the negative and positive? Well, do you want the pinpoint and pretend like the rest of the ocean doesn't exist? Or, you know, we should be striving for the, the full ocean. But do we realize, having said that, that the vast majority of churches, including many, many, many churches in our denomination, will only preach the positive Yeah. I mean, I'll be honest, Phil. I preach the positive to myself in my head. You know, I, I 
not I don't want to say actively try to suppress, but I struggle with right with the whole truth here. Right. <laughs> you know what I mean? So right. that's a problem. Right. It is. It's a huge pro- it's a huge problem. And I think um if and I'm gonna make a little bit of a leap here, but you know, you talked about the urgency of our church needing to to hear these things. Well, we're it's not like we're not susceptible to that even in, right. in our church. Right. So so we're um, you know, I I I I labeled it a tribe, the Grace Junkies, of which I am a partial member. <laughs> It's convenient, you know. I I join the tribe when it's convenient for me, which is probably hypocritical of me. And these are brothers and sisters in Christ. Do you realize? Mm-hmm. Um, but um, I I know that it is also possible because I hang out with grace junkies. I like them. Um, to preach the negative and not the positive, you know? And so all judgment, the discipline aspect of what I was talking about in my second point, and no grace, is uh, a distorted gospel. Just as I'm arguing that all, Mm -hmm. if I can say so, all grace and no discipline. And by the way, this is an aside, but it's an important aside. I do not subscribe to the law-grace dichotomy. I find that to be an underdeveloped, um, immature Lutheranism, which gets dragged into our rich, fully formed, mature, robust, covenant-reformed theology by people who don't really get it. Here's my alternative. Instead of law-grace, it's Christless law, Christless law, or law without Christ. You say, well, what's the big difference? Because Christ and grace sound like the same thing, a graceless law. Well, I like graceless law better than I like a law-grace dichotomy. So graceless law is an improvement over law v. grace. But I like Christless law because Christ is the law keeper who alleviates us from the burden of law keeping as to our justification in his perfectly manifested humanity, incarnated in the womb of the Virgin Mary by the power of the Holy Spirit, immediately declaring in, his, in the instant of his conception that the old Adam is gone. So the new man in Christ is a lawkeeper par excellence. And my entire Christian life hinges on that. Mm. So the minute we, we set up a law v. grace dichotomy, we take not just a swipe, but, a, but an entire cornerstone out of the gospel, I think, if not the entire foundation. So it's a Christless law that we're avoiding. So I move into the law without fear, without any, without even a, a, a hint of trepidation, because the law is no longer my accuser. And so it's an unbelieving movement into the law of God. It's a Christless inhabiting of the law, which leads us to be tempted to settle for this junk food Pringles version of mm. the explanation of the covenant of grace, which is law v. grace. 
but rather when we move into law, clothed in Christ, fully secure and assured of our unbreakable union with Christ by the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. We are seated with Christ in the heavenly places. There isn't a place in the law I'm, I'm afraid to go. Nor am I afraid that I'm going to get lost there and somehow like get lost in the stacks of an Oxford library and just you know, never emerge again. Hmm. Because Christ has kept the law in such a way as to keep me from ever wanting to be a rabbi. There's no need. So I think, it, I think it, it, it's a better way of, of thinking of things. So that gives me, I guess, you know, if, if I'm talking to a grace junkie, it gives me a little more confidence to say, yes, we must preach the negative alongside the positive. This isn't what you think it is. Uh, you know, you mentioned it hit hard. Um, I am fundamentally opposed to beating people up from the pulpit. I, I just think that that's ridiculous. Mm. But um, I get the impulse, which is, if I'm there just to stroke your ego, then I need to quit quick, because otherwise I'm I'm uh, I'm I'm a traitor to the pulpit. Mm. But if I preach the, the scriptures, uh, if, if, if the preacher preaches the scriptures as much as possible in their fully spirit-formed um, manner, in a fully spirit-formed manner, then it should convict us. It should also inspire us. And it's going to be different for each person. So um, a classic example of a grace junkie was... Uh, kind of a proto-progressive Anglican reform type that I met many years ago, and he quoted the kind of the, it's become a canard a little bit, but uh, I don't remember who said it first, but um, the job of a preacher is to afflict the comfortable and to comfort the afflicted. And his rejoinder was, I just find that everyone in my church is afflicted, so I'm just going to comfort them. Mm. So he had completely rationalized the covenant of grace out of the picture at that point in my mind, because he had a uh, he had a Christ he kind of had a Christless view of the law. So hmm. it was an intentional and a strategic and a pastoral move to begin with the gospel, which I did my my gospel ladder, and then spend some time in developing what I call the negative space around it, right. which is are you unwittingly or erroneously finding yourself opposed by God. What do you think of my Christless law concept? Just maybe uh, dip your toe into that as, as an alternative to the law v. gospel dichotomy. <laughs> I think it's uh, I th I think it's helpful. I've not heard you um, share that paradigm before or way of looking at it. Um, and I'm also and I, I I didn't say anything other than put a little bitty little asterisk in there when I was in mid speech that you, you did that I also don't think that those are opposite ends of a spectrum never to be yeah, met um, but I think it is I think um, I think what you shared is extremely helpful in bringing cohesion 
to some, I guess, at least mental conflict that goes about, I would believe, in most Christians' minds. I know mine, mm-hmm. you know, because I'm always tending to fall off of one side of that horse, mm-hmm. right? And so it's tempting to think, well, these are just two, se- two separate sides. I'm going to try to split it down the middle as much as possible. But what does that actually mean, or what does that look like? Um, so I, th- I think it is helpful to think about it that way, because they are not separate. And, and the Bible tells us that. I mean, through, through and through, I, th- I think of um, Galatians in particular comes to mind. But regardless, without going off on, a, on yet another tangent, um, I think it is helpful to not separate Christ from the law, and therefore not the grace that we receive through him from the law. But the fact of the matter is, and, and you said it much more eloquently, so I'm not going to repeat it full stop, but, you know, Christ was the keeper of the law, and therefore grace does not mean that the law got abolished, right? And the Bible, and Bible talks about that. It's not like, well, because Christ died for our sins, well, the law doesn't exist anymore, or that it's not important. But at the same time, we're not so stuck under the thumb of the law that, you know, there's no hope for us. And I see that in Peter, you know, and I'm thinking of the verses that we looked at this week, if it wasn't humble yourselves, and it was just that don't be anxious, God cares for you. There's no power in that. There's no, I mean... That's a good message, but it's not particularly hopeful to me because um, I'm gonna get really big. <laughs> I'm I'm gonna get really blown up in my head if that's the case. You know? Oh well, you know. Yeah, I don't have to be anxious about anything. God's got this. You know, I'll just kind of go through life thinking that all is going to be peachy keen, and when it's not, then I have every right to be angry if I forget that, <laughs> that there's a command at the beginning of that verse to humble myself, right, under mm-hmm. the mighty hand of God. So I'm, I'm making a little bit of a stretch saying that that's the negative and the other part is the positive, but I think it's there at least a little bit in my mind. Mm-hmm. Um, and so th- there's a picture, a small picture of, of the gospel even in first Peter five, five, six. That's good. Transitioning a little bit to that verse, verse seven. Um, we're talking about um, sorry, I was just reading reading the text there. We're we're talking about a participle cast. Mm-hmm. So it's, it accompanies the command, which is an imperative, humble. So that's a, a verb in the indicative. The participle moves along it in, an, in a non-indicative mood. So to indicate something is to stipulate its, 
it exists kind of in its own right, if I may put it that way. I'm not a grammarian or okay. an English guy, although, you know, I like to listen in. So that's kind of my, my way of thinking about it. So humble yourself, casting. So casting runs alongside as a sidecar if, if it's a motorcycle. Okay. So you got the dog in the sidecar casting the cares. But the main driver here is humble yourself. So whence, from, from whence cometh the anxieties, I guess is my question. Do the anxieties arise from the non-humbling of myself, hmm. which is what I said in the, in the message? Mm-hmm. Or do they arise as a consequence of the humbling of myself? Meaning, by humbling myself, I'm sure to experience cares and concerns. And the fruit of hiding under the hand of God in a hostile society to God is you're going to add, not take away, to the hardships of life. It'd be much easier to viewed from one angle to not humble myself and so I I think the answer Tim is both but because we have we know that anxieties arise from God opposing us and that's what I was choosing to to stress or to emphasize but I also want to say that the the anxieties and the fears in view are are also a function of having positioned myself contrary to the prevailing norms that that are in my family, in my church, and in my school or workplace. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I think it's both. I think it's both in, in the sense of casting your anxieties is a... a a promise that God gives us as we humble ourselves that this is what we can do. He cares for us. We can cast our anxieties. But I also think it does mean that humbling ourselves will bring about anxieties, not from God, not from God, not that He's opposing us with with anxious. He's not giving us anxiety when we humble ourselves before Him. But we will experience anxiety because of the world, because of our sin, and he's giving us an outlet, mm-hmm. right? It's a little bit, uh, that, that's a great way to put it, Tim, and it reminds me of Paul's version of this, which is um, in 1 Corinthians ten thirteen, where he says, God will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you can bear, but when you are, he provides a way out that you, I think it says, so that you may stand, stand up, up under, under it. it. That's right, yeah. So... Um, Peter once again proves himself to be an extremely nuanced exegete of the entirety of New Testament theology, and you never really know that he's doing it until you stop and think about it, and then you're, you see all these, like in an MRI or a CAT scan, you know, all these points in the body or the brain light up, hmm. and the New Testament just lit up through Peter's kind of dipping into, so, so nimbly dipping into kind of the whole stream of the gospel. I'm going to ask one more question, and this is a little um, different than the, the the rest of the conversation we've had thus far. But do you do, are we to assume then that this 
this humility or maybe lack thereof was a problem for the early church that he's writing to? Because he's talking a lot about one another here, right? He's already talked about, you know, submission to civil authorities and in marriages and, um, you know, even in a, a, a owner-slave relationship. But here we were talking about humility. He's talking about to your elders, you know, submission to your elders, and then everyone be clothe yourselves with humility towards one another, right? We looked at um, last week, and now, you know, again, the, now it's a command, a second command of humility, humble yourselves. So I'm wondering kind of what might be the, the impetus or the context for Peter to really be hitting mm-hmm. this hard here. Because I feel, I, I mean, you, you brought it up and I said it first, I felt hit hard, not because of you, but because of what God's saying right. to me through the text. And I'm kind of wondering for our brothers and sisters in the church who were the original audience for this letter, how would that have hit them? Yeah. Let's, let's read two texts from Peter. Reread 1 Peter 1, 7, and then 3, 9. So 1, 7. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's one seven and eight. Did you do eight or just is that? Just just, that was just seven. Okay. Eight is though you have not seen him, you love him. Yeah. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Good. So that's in the introduction. Mm-hmm. And then three nine three is nine the transition is... away from the household code into kind of a g- general instruction to the church, which is where we find ourselves also in chapter 5. Yeah, do not repay evil for evil, or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. Okay, and so, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, that he might exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxieties upon him, because he cares for you, set in the context of those three verses. What's Peter's uh, burden with this thing of humbling? What what was the church needing to hear? Or what was he trying to communicate to the church in light of what he felt they were struggling with? Yeah, I think um, it's it's a it's a hope filled message here so there's in in both those other passages in chapter one uh so that the test of genuineness of your faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of jesus christ and then in chapter three bless for this is what you recalled that you may obtain a blessing so there's this blessing positive reward aspect. But clearly they're under stress or duress. And they're to regard that duress in a certain way and to think about it in a certain way. What I felt 
the, the thread I was trying to, to grasp in the scripture. And just like last week, I, I felt like saying this week, I stand before an ocean with a teaspoon and all you can take is a, is a medicine dropper. So, you know, it's, it's a fighting and losing battle to think that we can fully expound the scriptures, even let alone understand them. Hmm. Um, but We'll wait for your commentary for that. You're going to wait for heaven for that. <laughs> just, yeah. Peter's commentary. Yeah. I'm, gonna, I'm, like, I'm definitely signed up for about a 10,000-year class with the Apostle Peter alone. Um, so... So, in our context, have we so aligned ourselves with cultural norms without perhaps even realizing it, with the soft persecution that characterizes Western American society and Christianity in general? Mm -hmm. And you couple that with sometimes a, a bloviated and exaggerated sense of aggrieved aggrievedness like you can't tell me what to do i am an american christian so we've got this kind of inflated itis of rights rights itis at times that that trickles around our conservative circles and somewhat insulates us from this command to humble ourselves mm. and i whether it's you got shortchanged at ShopRite or someone else got seated before you at, uh, you know, um, Applebee's or whether someone cut you off in traffic or your wife isn't listening to you or your children don't want to go to a Christian school or your pastor preached too long or, you know, Whatever it is, you want to run a you want to run you know the uh, the triathlon on Sunday morning. So you know we've got this like don't tread on me thing going on in like every nook and cranny of our lives, almost to the point that First Peter is practically meaningless. And so I'm really um, and and. I, I, lo I love that flag. You know, I love the yellow flag with the snake on it. Um, you know, divided into 12, 13 parts. This is the colony, whatever it is. Um, you know, unite or die. I've, I've got one of those flags, too. <laughs> I love the Revolutionary War as much as almost anybody I know. But there's something about our, our diluted experience of the gospel in modern America, in modern suburban South Jersey, that makes the grace that's available to us equally limp hmm. and uh, mm -hmm. impotent. Mm -hmm. So I'm, I'm trying to help situate us along with Peter's first readers as uh, poised for the countercultural witness, a blessing our neighbors, which is what we're called to do. And so I'm not quite sure how to do that other than try to listen as best I can and then open my mouth and let God speak from the text of Scripture hmm. about the, the vital beauty of hiding under the hand of God.
Yeah. That's so helpful, Phil. I thank you for that because I've been feeling like first Peter has been so, so, so applicable. Like we could be the original audience of first yeah. Peter. Yeah. Um, and even in asking the question, I knew that something was going to come out of your head and your mouth that would have been so beneficial to me and hopefully to the listeners and in how this relates to us now. It's almost like we we're at the risk of getting the compressed MP3 version of the gospel. Mm-hmm. And we've we've missed out on the the full high fidelity lossless mm. audio, or mm. to to use a more visual analogy, we we have black and white when we're missing out on the Technicolor mm-hmm. or the 4K or the 8K mm-hmm. HD version of the gospel that truly exists, and we're taking this watered down version of it, mm-hmm. and it's tempting to do that because it's in a way it seems easier. Mm-hmm. It's not really easier at all. We're just selling ourselves short. It's the Lewis quote about we'd rather have the mud puddles in the backyard than the the vacation to the shore. And and, uh, since I mentioned him, Jack Miller, cheer up, church. It's a lot worse than you think. Right. But it's far greater than you ever imagined. And I think he's kind of channeling that beautiful kind of C.S. Lewis frame of thinking. In, in his response. So a cu- couple of quick um, throwaway comments, if I may, yeah. just, just for the fun of it, and then we can... Well, we can't throw them away. They're going to be recorded, but okay, well, but fair enough. Yeah, yeah just the, these are definitely move, not, us, move us towards a conclusion here, Phil. Sure. So these are not for prime time, but just little fun nuggets. So there, there's one other place I mentioned that casting is only the word itself it's not throw it's cast mm-hmm. and it's only used in luke 1935 when the disciples cast their cloaks and i had some fun with that mm-hmm. you know that's just that would just me kind of finger painting you know mm-hmm. um but there's actually another place that it's used in the bible a a most unlikely place and i neither had the time nor the courage nor the wisdom to 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 uh channel it but when elisha has died and his grave apparently is open they they're burying a man an unnamed man and some enemies of israel come along and they're in such a panic that they stop burying the man and they throw him in elisha's open grave where apparently his bones are so it's you know (laughs) If you want to read weird in the Bible, just start with the, the, the Elisha narratives and you just get go from weird to weirder. Lo and behold, they cast his body onto the bones of Elisha. Hmm. And what happens? He comes to life. <laughs> Never to be seen or mentioned again. Yep. Surely he goes on to die. But just the, the weirdest of weird miracles there in 2 Kings. And so... That's not the whole of it, Tim. So there is a there is an old uh, Christian devotional, non-inspired devotional, which sees this miracle and allegorizes it almost to death. No pun intended. <laughs> and it says, 
we have been thrown upon the body, cast, mm-hmm. we've been cast upon the body, bones, and spirit of Christ. If that is the case, we shall rise. <laughs> they nailed it. I mean, I don't know how else I would preach the uh, that the weirdest of all of the Elisha yeah. miracles. It's good. So how that translates to First Peter, I have no idea. <laughs> if I throw my dead cares upon Jesus, are they going to come to life and hunt me? <laughs> I don't know. Or maybe I throw my living cares upon the body of Jesus and he kills them. Maybe that's, it's an inverse. Hmm. I think that there's, yeah, I don't know. I don't know how that plays. I, I did I did come I did conclude this and, and maybe I this came out a little bit when I talked about um, be careful how you walk it's it's a lifestyle it's not just our cares that we're to throw upon Christ but it's our entire lives hmm. and I think I do make the mistake sometimes of kind of uh, target shooting or or snipering this care or that anxious fear and I put that kind of particular thing upon Christ then the whole sort of rotten flesh, you know, when, when they say, I used to teach science, you know, and so when there's a little bit of mold on the bread, the spores are through the whole bag. Right. And I, I just carve out this moldy piece of cheese and I eat the rest, you know. I figure, well, you know. <laughs> I can't see it. So. I can't see it. I'll probably be yeah, fine. We'll, we'll probably be okay. But I think with our anxieties, those are actually poisonous spores that you should throw the whole bag out. You need to throw your whole life on Christ. And because he cares not just about your fears, hmm. but everything about you. And there are hidden uh, mycelia, you know, the, the, the fungal fibers are connecting your cares to things that are actually look pretty good on the surface, but it's the sanctification of the whole man that's needed. And uh, we need a thoroughgoing transformation, not just, not just carving out little... Uh, little bits of the of the moldy potato yeah that's that's right our um confession and catechism talk about that sanctification is the whole man the whole man after the image of christ that's right yeah that's that's um that's a good note because i think i'm tempted just like you and when when i read cast your anxieties my head went to Matthew 11, take my yoke upon you. For, um, for my yoke is easy, easy and my, my burden, burden is, is light. light. Yeah, and I'm gentle and lowly of heart. Right. And that, that doesn't translate one-to-one, but that's, it's a that's just in my, my head it's, went there. But even a, that, I'm that's always, when I think of that passage, I also think of, you know, come you who are, weary and heavy laden so i'm thinking of when i'm downtrodden and when i'm struggling and i'm not so i appreciate what you're saying here about the whole man because it's you're right god god doesn't <laughs> god doesn't just say give me the problems he says give me everything mm-hmm. um, certainly the problems come with that right obviously right um and maybe yeah, definitely importantly that they they come too, but it's not just the, it's not, it's not just the problems. So so we we owe this to the grace junkies. We'll end with a 
with me joining their camp once again. Uh, it isn't just our sins that need to be redeemed, it's our righteousness as well. Uh, even our most righteous acts are like filthy rags, and we need the grace of God, not just for our mistakes, but for our successes. Mm. And to see our successes not as kind of monuments to our own capacity, but we're sanctified by grace. We're, we're inching forward every, every inch of ground that's reclaimed for the Lord in our lives and in the world is a testimony, is a monument to God's grace. Amen. It's amazing. And it means that we can actually do something. It does. We're not like, you know, sitting here thinking, how am I going to, how am I going to do this, Phil? <laughs> you know, um, which is the, the struggle for the, the other camp, right? It's, how am I going to do anything? How am I going to do anything? Because I'm never going to be good enough. I'm never going to, even my, even my good things are not good enough. Even my righteousness is not righteous enough. And that's all true. But thanks to Jesus, we don't have to be stuck in the mud here. So... We probably have run very long. I, I didn't have a, a clock running today, but um, really enjoyed our conversation. Yeah, me I too. I thought it was just super helpful. Um, I hope that all of you out there who are listening have found it helpful this week as well. I'm, I'm very, very, very excited to hear <laughs> next next Sunday's sermon just because I, I kind of, I'm like on a on a high here, you mm -hmm. know, like, oh, just give me the next one, give me the next one. I'm ready to turn the page and... Um, and hear the next one. No pressure at all, Phil, on that whatsoever. But no, I understand, and that's that's good. Um, I have my own journey between now and Sunday of humbling myself under God's mighty hand. And mm -hmm. if He's real, He'll He'll meet me in the study uh, as He does every week. So mm -hmm. um, I'm not I'm not worried about it, and just open to where He where He'll lead us. Yeah. Well, I'll be praying for you. And for our listeners who are particularly part of our church, I just ask you to be praying for Phil and whoever's preaching the you know the upcoming Sunday, but in this case for Phil as he prepares this week, because as you probably all have seen or heard at this point, if you listen to any of our episodes, you know you could pick up on how much time and effort and energy goes into um, preparing a sermon for us to hear on Sunday, and um, I've experienced that myself this summer. It's, you know, and I'm not an expert at it, so it takes me weeks and weeks and weeks of time. So um, we are blessed. You know, we're told that that's how God works in our lives is through His Word being preached on Sunday mornings from servants, you know, ministers of the Word, and so we are blessed, Lord, by the Lord for the work that you're doing, Phil, at our church, and I thank you for that on behalf of the church, and especially specifically for me. I've just been so um, overwhelmingly blessed by this sermon series in particular. I feel like I've gotten so much out of it, and I know that there's an infinite more there, as you mentioned, that, you know, maybe I'll waitlist the, the class with Peter 
in heaven. But um, yeah, I've I've been encouraged by what God has spoken through you or or exhorted and, and challenged our church to think about even in the past week, two weeks. And uh, yeah, we'll, we'll definitely be praying for this upcoming week's sermon. And I look forward to being able to chat with you about it next Monday. I, I think we'll have some interesting things to talk about is my, is my hunch. So. <laughs> Until then, um, thanks for joining us on this week's episode of the Deeper Cut podcast. Um, as always, we'd love to have you if you'd like to join us in studio for one of our upcoming uh, recordings, we'd love to have that. And uh, until next week, we pray you have a blessed day. Thank you.